my passion really began popping up repeatedly over and over again in the most unlikely of places. It was in a, a dream, literally a dream, a recurring dream that I would have at night. And the dream wasn't um, overtly about my passion, which is to make art. My dream um, was a dream about a white room. And I would go in my dream and sit in this white room and just sit there silently and quietly on concrete floors. I was surrounded by these tall white walls, warehouse windows running the length of one of the walls, and a mattress on the floor in the back. And when I was in this room, I would be filled with the most profound sense of peace. And one day I was telling a friend about this wild dream and how weird it was and how I kept having it and sitting in this room and being filled with bliss, basically. And she asked me the question that totally turned my life inside out. She said, have you ever thought about looking for this room in real life? You are listening to Louder Than Words, the podcast inspiring creatives of all types by giving you a glimpse into the lives and creative process of the most remarkable people you know. I'm John Benini, and I'm your host. Hello there, everybody, and welcome to episode number five of Louder Than Words. It's so nice to have you here. Thanks for hanging out with us. It's really nice today to be here myself as I'm super excited for our guest. So I'm basically going to sit back and act like a fan, just like the rest of you, and listen in. The only difference is, you know, I, I just get to ask the questions. <laughs> so today I, I have El Luna, whose claim to internet fame came with a post that she published on Medium two years ago about called The Crossroads of Should and Must. This post blew up. Thousands of recommendations. Among them were people like Evan Williams, uh, one of the founders of Twitter. Over 5 million views, all leading to a publishing deal and a brand new book out this month of the same title. Prior to that, however, Elle worked as a, as a designer at IDEO and with startups like Mailbox, Uber, and Medium. And then one post changed everything. But I'll let her tell that story. So Elle, it's such a pleasure to have you here today. Welcome, and thanks for, thanks for coming to hang out and share your story with us. Thank you so much for having me. How's everything out in, uh, how's everything out in sunny San Francisco? Oh, it's really, really nice. It's um, spring is is now in full bloom, and all of the buds are starting to come out. And it's it's a very magical time of the year to watch the whole natural world wake up. Well, you're talking to a New Englander right now. So when you say spring has finally bloomed, uh, what is the winter like in San Francisco? <laughs> the winter is is also quite pleasant. I, I lived in Chicago for about seven years. And so I really, really appreciate San Francisco's understanding of, of winter. Although um, Mark Twain is, is famously quoted here in San Francisco. He says, he, he said once that the, the coldest winter he ever experienced was summer in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. And he's, a, he's a guy who has a way with words himself. So uh, I'll trust that. <laughs> yes. Um, so, so L, I just alluded to this. Uh, about your post on Medium, but I want to break up any of our discussion points that we have uh, today into two time frames. So before the Medium post and after, because I think you'd agree that your life took, you know, changed quite a bit after that post. So prior to the Medium post, and we'll get into that in a sec, um, can you just tell us about, 
yourself personally and professionally before that medium post? Like what were you what were you up to? What kind of jobs were you working and 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 where was your life at that time? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm a designer by trade and I uh, have worked for a number of startups. Um everyone from Medium to um Uber, if you if you used the original Uber app, um, the one that I guess came right after Uber began launching around the country and around the world, I worked with a team on that, which was really fun. And then the last startup work that I did was with a company called Mailbox, and we wanted to revolutionize the way that email was processed on the iPhone. And uh, at all of these startups and also pre-startups, I was at IDEO. My role has been that of a designer, visual designer, doing everything from uh, logos and brand work to uh, user experience, interaction design, a lot of traditional print design background uh, by training, and then really moving it more digitally into, into my jobs and into the, the work that I did for startups and for companies. So like many people that are in creative positions, whether they're writers or designers, you also had you know, a, a passion on the side, so, um, which obviously this whole you know, th- th- uh, theme of, of the Crossroads of Should and Must in your book is, is sort of built around. So tell us about your, your, your passion of painting and how that sort of played into your personal life at the time because you weren't really you know, pursuing that professionally. Yes. Well, you know, it, 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 it kind of came about in a very unique way. Um, I think sometimes when we think about our passion, we think about this glaring thing that's, you know, right in our face, uh, that's just so obvious and, and, you know, we can kind of touch it or put our hand on it. For me, it was a little bit more obscure than that. I actually think that maybe it was so close to me that I couldn't see it at all. And my passion really began popping up repeatedly over and over again in the most unlikely of places. It was in a a dream, literally a dream, a recurring dream that I would have at night. And the dream wasn't um, overtly about my passion, which is to make art. My dream um, was a dream about a white room. And I would go in my dream and sit in this white room and just sit there silently and quietly on concrete floors I was surrounded by these tall white walls, warehouse windows running the length of one of the walls, and a mattress on the floor in the back. And when I was in this room, I would be filled with the most profound sense of peace. And one day I was telling a friend about this wild dream and how weird it was and how I kept having it and sitting in this room and being filled with bliss, basically. And she asked me the question that totally turned my life inside out. She said, have you ever thought about looking for this room in real life? And the idea sounded ridiculous, a little bit silly, but eventually I actually began to consider it. And I began to wonder what would happen if I set about looking for this room. It it was this kind of, I don't know, it was like a fantastical feeling of being on a treasure hunt. Uh, It it sort of felt like this was a clue. And if I just followed the clue, it it would guide me towards my treasure. And so I I opened up Craigslist and I began searching for this room from my dreams, which was altogether a hilarious experience. And eventually, after weeks of searching, I saw it right there on the screen, no bigger than a thumbnail. It was a photograph of the dream that I'd been having at night. 
And I clicked it open. It was an apartment for rent in San Francisco. There was an open house the very next day, of course. I went, I submitted my application, I got the apartment, and I moved in two weeks later. Wow. On my, on my first night in this room, I sat down on the floor, and it's very strange to be sitting on the same concrete floor that you were previously sitting on in your dreams. And instead of being filled with that peace, that sense of, that sense of, of deep, calm bliss, I unexpectedly began to panic. What was going on? What was this all about? I looked around at the room and I said out loud, why am I here? And as clear as day, as though the treasure was, was coming in that moment, the white room said back to me, it's time to paint. And I hadn't painted for a very long time. I hadn't really done any art of any kind for a very long time. You know, like I, I shared with you, I was designing, I was working at all of these startups and this voice was so clear, um, about what it wanted and what it was asking me to do. The next morning I got up, I rebuilt my, you know, painting toolkit, getting all of my supplies back together again. And I went back to the studio and I began painting. I was painting on nights and weekends. I was painting, you know, you know, if my if my nine to five was during you know the five working days, it was really more like nine to nine. Being in a startup, um, the other hours of the day became my time to paint. And after I guess four months of this intensity of you know designing logos and apps all day and then painting at night, there was something so exhausting about this this process, um, I got to a place where I eventually needed to decide, uh, how was I going to spend my days? How was I going to spend my time? And that was what led me to this moment, which, um, I called in the medium post the really the crossroads of should and must, uh, what was the work that I was qualified to do as a skilled maker? And what was the work that I had to do that I must do that I felt deeply inner conviction around doing? Um, so just for time, was, yeah, just for timeline purposes, L, what year was it when you found the room and you moved in? What just for, just to put us in the time period in relation to the Medium Post in April of 2013? When was that? I found the room at the end of 2012, and the Medium Post happened. In and I and I I decided to ultimately step away from my job in um, April of 2013, and the Medium Post actually happened in April of 2014. It happened one year after I had stepped away, and and one year into really making art full time. Sure, and 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 I think you kind of answered this. So like this pull for you started because of a dream, not, you know, <laughs> not, not, a, not a dream in the sense that you wanted this, you know, luxurious lifestyle, but a dream when you were sleeping. So this pull started, and I want, I want you to paint a picture for us, no pun intended or pun intended. We, we can go <laughs> uh, you know, what was going on in your life professionally or personally during this time that led you to such introspection, introspection in your dreams, but also you started thinking about, you know, am I supposed to be doing what I should be doing? 
or what I'm destined and what I must do? Like what led to all this introspection? The company that I was working at, uh, Mailbox, what led to all of this introspection was how phenomenally everything was going with the product that we were building. I felt like I was in creative flow where the team was phenomenal, the work was exceptional, everything, it was, it was hard, rigorous work. Our heads were down. We were working very intently on this product and everything was going, um, moving forward. Every, everything was being built. Everything was happening. And in February of 2013, we launched Mailbox to the world. And for anyone who who builds digital products, you know it's a, a really beautiful moment when you get to take all of this private kind of confidential work and finally share it with the world and see people use it and interactive with, with this tool that you've built. And I will never forget, John, it was, it was launch day and I was sitting at my desk and I already had the white room and I was painting, you know, on nights and weekends and I was sitting at my desk and I was looking around the room on launch day thinking, wow, wow, what a tremendous, beautiful day. It felt like one of the highlights of my life to experience this, this journey of taking a product from a post-it note all the way through to a, a product in the app store that anyone could download on their phones anywhere around the world to help make their email better. That was a phenomenal experience. But deep down, I had no idea what designing iPhone apps had to do with my dream of a white room. Those two experiences were so polarizing. They seemed so disconnected. And I was so exhausted that I couldn't have one foot in my, in my paintings and one foot in the startup. It was like everyone was losing, including me, when my attention was bifurcated in such an extreme way. And that was the moment where I realized, and, and maybe other people have felt this too, for, for so long I felt like painting was risky or, or doing art full time was, was, um, was, was, was the big risk. But it was on this day when the tide really flipped. And it was when I began to realize that staying in this, in this job, in this role, and not at least trying to give it a shot at making art actually became the riskier decision because the work was flowing out of me. It was, it was just happening. And I had to trust that if I could buy myself a little bit of time to try to make a living, you know, financially make a living full time as an artist, at least try to do it. Um, I, I needed to, to see what would happen if, if I took that leap, if I, if I made that step. And, um, that was, that was really the flip that switched when things went from, um, feeling like while I could design these apps and while I could now, you know, take the product that's on the iPhone and put it on the desktop and the Android and all these other platforms, which are really important from a technological standpoint, um, I realized that I needed, I, ju- I just had to go and paint. I had to go and do this. And I think, I don't think it's too hyperbolic to say that that's really courageous in the sense that most people or many people would feel incredibly fulfilled as you did working on these apps and 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 having the type of design work that you had in your portfolio and launching mailbox but you had an incredible dedication to this dream you were having which i think is is super courageous especially for somebyou know we're supposed to be quote unquote grown-ups right and it's like we're, <laughs> you, you were doing all of the right things and you were seeing success but you really 
created had this dedication towards your quote unquote must. Um, and, and and just I know you 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 hit on this earlier briefly, but just so we can highlight it here in huge huge letters, what is what does that mean? Like sh- the crossroads of should and must. What's the difference? between should and must, and if you could sort of ground that into your life at that exact time. So what was your should and this must that was pulling you? At a very high level, um, when we're at this crossroads, which we arrive at over and over again throughout our lives in big ways and in small ways, and on that particular day, it was a very big, clear crossroads in like billboard lights. You know, it was blinking. It was very obvious that I had a choice to make. Um, On one hand, there's should. And should is how other people want us to live our lives. It's essentially all of the expectations that others layer upon us. Now, shoulds can be small things like you should go see that movie or you should visit this place. Those aren't really the ones that I'm talking about. I'm talking about the larger shoulds, um, the larger systems of thought that really impact and change um, not only what we do with our lives, but I think maybe in a larger sense, what we think we can do with our lives. And when we choose should, we are choosing to live our lives for someone or something other than ourselves. The other option, the other path at this crossroads that we have the choice to choose is must. And must originates from a very different place. It's it's not the expectations from out there. Must is who you are, what you believe, what you know to be true when you are alone with your truest, quietest, uh, most authentic self. And must is, I, like, if must was a part of the body, I think it would come, like, just from the gut. It's this deep inner knowing. It's it's a conviction. It's a passion. It's it's something that you just know to be true. It's It's almost unavoidable. And when we choose must, we're we're beginning to really listen to our own intuition and we're beginning to um, really connect to our own ideals. And that's an incredibly powerful thing. Although it might ask us to do um, scary things. It might ask us to do, to create new to the world things that maybe haven't been out there yet. I, I look at the life of Vincent Van Gogh, right? Like he felt like he had to paint a certain way. He had to live his life in this way. And yet the world wasn't ready for his paintings, but he kept doing it. And I can't, I I can't even fathom how difficult that must be um, to pursue your must when everyone else says, no, no, you should paint like everyone else. But choosing must is the greatest thing that any of us can do with our lives, regardless of how hard it is, regardless of how much it asks of us um, I believe that the more we choose it, there's this deep inner sense of peace where our mind and our spirit, our body are all moving into alignment. It's, it's sort of like there's no longer, you know, duels happening inside of you in your head where your brain wants to go one way and your, your, your body or your spirit wants to go another. And um, that's why choosing must is so powerful. So those are the two options. And where I was on this particular day is a really incredible moment. And I, sometimes I think, um, it's, it's easy to think, ah, should is just bad, bad, bad. And must is good, good, good. And let's just choose must. It's, it's more nuanced than that. And, um, I really felt the pull on that day when I was sitting at the desk because here I was a part of an amazing team working on something 
really, really incredible. We wanted to create a better tool in the world so that we could give more people around the world more time in their lives. So instead of being bogged down in email, they would have extra time to spend with their kiddos or extra time to go work out. Or we really, really saw this as a, as a gift of time that we were giving to as many people as, as would join this, this um, adventure with us. And on the other hand, there was painting, which financially I had a lot of questions about. I had a lot of fears around. Um, and these were two very different paths. And they were, this is the trick, equally appealing. But they were appealing for very different reasons. And I really had to choose. I, I felt um, that it wasn't sustainable to continue to do both. And so the first thing I did was sit down and look at my finances and figure out if I could buy myself time. You know, we can use our money to buy a car or buy clothes, a new suit, a sweater. Um, I really wanted to see, could I, could I spend some of my money and buy myself time to try to make a living as an artist? And I looked at what that would be. I circled a date on the calendar. And when that date hit, if I hadn't figured out some way to make money, then I, I needed to be full-fledged into a job search. But up until that time, I, I gave myself permission to play. And once I circled that date on the calendar and I saw that it was, it was feasible for me to do this, uh, that's when I took I, I took that step towards must, and um, I guess that's that's where I was, and that's what the crossroads looked like for me in my life at that moment. Yeah, and and you know you left your job uh, where you saw great success, and you know this post came about a year later, probably when you started seeing, wow, this is this is working for me. This is what I was supposed to do. You started seeing traction. Um, so talk about that moment where you hit publish on that post. Um, you know, what was that like for you? Well, after I had stepped away from uh, my job, all of these people came out of the woodwork, these amazing people who had also, um, you know, I think we'd say made the leap. And um, they were dealing with how to make finances work, how to make, um, you know, what their work, how to get their work out into the world, how to connect with other people, where the community was. And it was like we were having all of these incredible conversations over breakfast and burritos and coffee. And the Medium Post really came about as this idea of, wow, in the past year, I've learned a lot about navigating this. But more than um, answers, I felt like I just had of questions. And I felt like the people that I was spending time with were asking very similar questions. And I found incredible richness um, more so in the questions than in the answers. And so I wanted to put them together into a collection of sorts, which is how the Medium Post came about. And um, from that place of wanting to share it, wanting to get it out into the world, I mean, I, I literally posted it and then went and hung out with my father because it was his birthday. And I had no idea. I, I post things online every day all the time on Instagram and all over social media. I'm posting you know, probably a piece a day, a piece of art a day. And the spirit of this was the same, except obviously after the post, something happened with that that had never happened with anything else. Yeah, this post became a lot bigger than you in a hurry. Uh, and, it, and I think you started to see that this change that impacted your life was also changing the lives of others. And you, you talk about this a little bit right at the beginning of The Crossroads of Should and Must, the new book out. Uh, talk about the response you started receiving when this post came out. Wow. Wow. Well, 
when it came out, there was um, a ton of people were sharing it. <clears throat> a ton of people were sharing it. There were a lot of questions. There was a lot of, um, I guess, just emotion. I could feel a lot of feelings around the post. And I, I wanted to know more about where that was coming from and why that was happening. I had um, one CEO say to me here in, in San Francisco, he said, you know, I, I wanted to send this to all of the employees at my company, but I figured that a third of them would quit if I sent it. He said, but then I realized that if they don't want to be here, if this isn't squarely within their passion, I would like for them to leave. I would like for them to step more fully into their calling. And so I sent it. And when I heard him say that, it totally rocked my world thinking about how people at all different levels, at all different points in their career, maybe they were new graduates, maybe they were you know, mid-career, maybe they were in their 70s, were thinking about these, um, these uh, options of should and must in their life. And it's sort of like the post was a giant flashlight and it said, hey guys, let's shine a light on this decision-making process. And let's actually look at how we've been making decisions throughout our lives. And let's bring more self-awareness to it, um, not just for me and my story, but for other people as well. And once that began to happen, wow, it was like ripples, ripples online through social media. The more and more people I began to talk to um, in real life, I just felt like the pain was there, the need was there. And so I wanted to extend it into a book specifically so I could address a couple of topics that the post didn't address, one of them being finances. I remember thinking, oh gosh, we've really, really got to address finances in the book because a lot of people want to do what they love, but what if they don't make a living doing it? It's a, it's a very, very good question. Yeah, and I think the most fascinating part about this too is the internet is the ultimate meritocracy. I don't Things don't reach that level of expanse without having you know great quality or or without exposing something much bigger going on so why specifically do you think this post resonated as much i mean over 5 million views you know leads to a publishing deal and why this sort of response what what bigger picture is this revealing i have to believe that deep down everyone knows that they have a special gift to give to the world, that there is something in them like a light. There is something in them that has been with them their whole lives that speaks to them in this almost unspoken way. It's, it's this intuitive pull that they have when they are around something that they love. Maybe it's music, maybe it's writing, maybe it's cars, there's something that pulls them in this unspoken way throughout their lives. But as we get older, we begin to kind of dull that emotional experience that we have around, around these things that we, that we kind of, without rhyme or reason, love. And other things begin creeping into our lives. We begin to um, have to deal with a myriad of complexities around just existing successfully here on, on the planet. And the reason I think the Medium Post exploded in the way that it did is because people 
have this inner feeling that they have a gift to give. And all too often, people feel that they are not expressing the fullness of that gift. And instead of saying, go get must, go get it, here are 10 ways that you can tap more fully into your passion, the post dug into something um, a little bit unexpected and took a turn into uh, the world of should, the origin of should. And all of these counterproductive forces that exist in our life that are maybe camouflaged in, that are hard to see, and that no matter how much our efforts are in earnest, moving towards our convictions and our passions, our must, we are swimming essentially upstream so long as the shoulds of our life are unexamined. And I think that's that's the thing that began to connect with folks. Wow, what are the shoulds that I live within day in and day out? How can I better understand the shoulds of my life? How can I truly deeply be free so that I have the energy and the focus to give must all that I've got? But isn't that, isn't that really hard? I mean, I think often we're held back by these fears of reality. So like, how do I pay the bills? What do I tell my boss? What about my family? Um, you know, the, you, you refer in the book as, as taking a leap of faith is a necessary component of, of pursuing your must, but how do we move past these real, these very real fears? Because, you know, most of us have these, these inner desires, as you say, but society and the way that we've structured our lives doesn't really support us sort of pursuing that. So how do we move past these, these fears, these, these realities that we live within? I love this question. There are so many ways that we can get creative with these fears, which are very scary, very big, and very real. Um, The book talks about a lot of um, kind of um, different frameworks for how you might begin to compartmentalize and think about combining these different factors in your life. So one of them is from uh, Stefan Sagmeister. He's a designer and an artist. He lives in New York City. And he gave this TED Talk where he talked about the difference between a job, a career, and a calling. A job, he says, is something done from nine to five, something typically done for pay. A career is a system of advancements over time, and a calling is something done for intrinsic motivation. We do it regardless if we get paid. And this TED Talk totally caught me because I had never thought about these three things as different. And I don't know for the folks listening, if you've ever thought about these things as different, but I would ask you this question, which of these do you have with your work, with your projects, both paid and unpaid, a job, a career, a calling, because they're different. And the more I began to learn about this and see it playing out in the folks, the people's lives that I was talking with, I realized that all too often we automatically assume that our job or even our career is also our calling. Uh, But this isn't always the case. Sometimes they're very different. And the amazing thing is that what we want to have is self-awareness around where we are, uh, what we have, what we'd like to have um, in the future. And then that allows us to begin playing with these three things in very creative ways. So for example, you might think that if you want to pursue your calling, you need to quit your job, right? You want to be um, and this was this was the path that I took. Um, I was painting full time, and I was trying to figure out how to make money from it. 
kind of along the way. But just because we want to pursue our calling doesn't mean that, like my journey, um, it needs to be everyone's journey. A wonderful, wonderful story that I came across was T.S. Eliot. So T.S. Eliot, I think we would argue, um, is has been a, was a phenomenal writer. He was an author, and and I would say his calling was his ability to write. But one of the things, the little known facts about his life is that T.S. Eliot was also a banker. He was a phenomenal financial mind in London. He had a beautiful career in finance. And I would say that having a career plus having a calling actually served his life in very beautiful ways. Having a career created the space, most likely, for him to have a calling. Um, Another story that is shared often is the story of Einstein. He had a job uh, in the patent office. He worked six days a week for nine hours a day for six years, filing patents, reading and reviewing patents. And it was during this time that he had this job and a young family, a young child, and was trying to pay the bills that he wrote four of his most significant papers on the theory of relativity. It was the combination of having a job plus a calling that created space for him to do the most important work of his life. And this really rocked my world because just because we do something for money, like have a job, have a career, it doesn't make that work dirty. And there is dignity in all work, regardless if it's a job, a career, or a calling. And it's really, really empowering and exciting to think that they're all equally appealing. It's just about understanding which one you have, which ones you'd like to have in your life, and then getting creative about deciding what's right for you, for your life, for your obligation, for your circumstances. And that's been one of the incredible joys of writing this book, extending it from the Medium Post, is realizing there are all these creative ways that we can get creative about finances. Um, a, A man came up to me one day and he said, well, that's great for you in your life, but I have five kids and a mortgage. Wow, what an amazing, amazing statement. I have five kids and a mortgage. What do you tell them? And the more I thought about this man and his situation, the more I realized that if you want to find must in your life, like this man who has a sea of commitments and obligations in his life, which I'm sure bring him a great deal of pleasure having these amazing children and a house that, um, most likely is worth having the mortgage for. How does he make space for must in his life? Well, this is what I what I wrote in the book. If you want to find must, find 10 minutes. Just find 10 minutes. It might be while you're sitting in line at the carpool lane. It might be while you're on the train going to work. It could be your lunch break. It could be during commercials of an hour of television. When you begin to get creative and have these frameworks for wow, I just need to find 10 minutes to sit down and read or write or paint, whatever that might be, you're basically creating space in your life for must to have a shot to get out. And the question is, well, if if must is so great and we all want it in our lives, why don't we do it? Well, we're just really busy and we are addicted to being busy. And the joy of figuring out kind of tips and tricks that are easy and bite-sized is cool. Start finding 10 minutes. Block it off on your calendar. 
Look at jobs, careers, callings. Make a map. There are all these, um, they're almost like tools in a toolkit, uh, which I wanted to fill the pages of the book with, that would give people all these different entry points into um, thinking about finances, time, space, obligations, commitment, all the scary and real questions that pop up, including vulnerability, right? Doing this work makes us feel incredibly, incredibly vulnerable. And one of the, the, the tools that I included in the book was to sit down, get out a piece of paper, and write at the top, what am I so afraid of? Write the numbers 1 through 10 down the left side of the page and just give it a go. What is the worst case scenario? Write it down. Is everyone going to begin laughing at you? Is everyone that you love going to leave your life when they see how horrible and awful your paintings are? Write things down that are true for you, that are really scary, and then walk yourself through them line by line. This, this, the cool, cool thing about this is that all of these tips and tricks are things that other people I, that I've met with and encountered along their journeys have shared that they do in their own studio practice or their own freelance career or their own um, job while they have their calling on nights and weekends. And the book was an opportunity to collect them all. But here's, here's the catch, John. I realize I'm talking for a long time about all these tools and tricks. I think that all of those things are designable. We can design our way out of financial concerns. We can design our way out of uh, vulnerability. We can, we can contain these seemingly vast, expansive fears and um, concerns that we have. But I would actually say that those are distractions. They are, they are um, so small compared to the enormous enormous impact that is quiet and silent and almost camouflaged into our decision-making that should plays in our lives. Should is this incredible, if, if left unexamined, like a prison that we live within in our worlds. And we sit inside this prison saying, but I can't get out of this prison because of finances or because of obligations. And while those things are true, we really have to deal with the larger systems of thought, the shoulds of our life. Those are so much bigger than the smaller, seemingly um, more immediate concerns of, of finances and time and space. And, and I think that's the surprising bit is that really, really understanding the shoulds of our life creates the most, the largest, the, the most sweeping opportunities for self-awareness and, and ultimately for freedom in our lives. Although that, that might sound a little counterproductive, sometimes the best way to get to must is first by going into should. And Al, never apologize. You can keep on talking, honestly. You're just like, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, you're a quote and a bulletin board quote machine. So I was actually, mm -hmm. jo I actually jotted down, I have a moleskin on my lap and I wrote down, what are you so afraid of? And I plan on, you know, taking part in that exercise later. And I can guarantee you, one of the things that I'm going to jot down um, is about money. And I know we've talked about this a lot, but that is a fear for a lot of people. That is a, a, a huge deterrent. But what I found most interesting about what you just said is it sounds like we have this notion that if I'm going to follow my passion, I need to quit tomorrow and go, <laughs> and go all in and put all my chips on the table. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, I'm going to starve. So what you're saying is that it can start with 10 minutes and it can end or 
evolve to becoming, you know, a bigger part of our life as it did for you and as it has for many other people? Totally. If somebody is at that place with their job, um, or maybe they've thought that their the work that they were doing was their calling, and they're realizing maybe it's it's there's something else that's calling them more deeply. Um, I would say begin framing uh, the work that you're doing. Begin putting some boundaries around your job. For example, I, I met with somebody last week who um, who has a job to pay the bills, which if we want to live on this planet, we all have to figure out a way to do. Like there's just in this current day and age, we have to make money if we want to live on planet Earth. Maybe we'll come up with a better way in the future, but that's the current situation. Um, and that's cool. We, we need to be able to pay the bills. And this individual was working probably 65 hours a week on um, her job. And at the end of the day, she was so exhausted. She was so tired. And she was working on weekends. She was on email all the time. She didn't have any physical energy for anything else. She had her, her, her space to take care of, her family to be a part of. There was no time for her to really sink into herself and listen to her own intuitive voice. And the advice that I gave her was, um, could you begin doing little things, uh, put boundaries around your job? For example, could you tell your colleagues that you won't be on email uh, between the hours of 7 p.m. and 7 a.m.? Uh, could you begin to say, I'm not going to work on Saturdays? Could you begin to say, um, my 65 hours a week maybe needs to go to 50 hours a week? Or um, you know, maybe I'll do an intense amount of hours, but only Monday through Friday. Start, start putting parameters around your job so that you have more space to invest in, um, I call it like solitude with yourself. Uh, really creating space in your life, not physically, but I mean, well, maybe physically, but uh, really just psychologically with yourself. It's like, you know, these wonderful stories throughout time of people going off into um, into the wilderness for days at a time to um, to quiet the voices of the village and and connect with more of the intuitive realm or the spiritual realm. You know, there's Native um, American tribes, Intuit tribes, they would they would periodically go off into the wilderness on these on these voyages or in Australia uh, young folks go off into um, a six-month journey a walkabout there's this incredible important kind of archetypal journey that seems to be uh, very significant on our own individual lives where we really take time to connect with ourselves and to connect with that um, that quiet and that that solitude and um, I think that finding it in just 10 minutes to start is a great place to start. And if you're in your work and you want to make some changes, start carving out 10 minutes every day. And after you begin filling that 10 minutes, I, I would guess that that 10 minutes will begin to swell. 10 minutes will become 20, 20 will become 45, 45 might become two hours. And one of the reasons I had a lot of faith in my decision to leave my job and to paint is because I could see how hard I was working. And that's really, really important. Um, I would say maybe have a friend that you you check in with and you kind of have accountability check-ins with and to talk about um, how much actual work you're getting done, not just kind of dreaming about being a painter or dreaming about writing a book, but actually sitting down at the table and getting out your pen and writing a paragraph, even if it's horrible, especially when it's horrible, sitting down and writing um, 
and seeing if you if, if if it's really coming from that place that you're willing to put in the hours and the commitment to do the work because it will be horrible. You will fail. Uh, you will throw a lot of work away. And but when it's really coming from that place that you have to do it, I think you're willing to put in the extra time, the extra hours, even though it will always be work. Um, there is something about holding yourself accountable and, and blocking off that time. And maybe once you've put in a hundred hours into your into your passion project that you're doing on nights and weekends, or I don't know, you could set a, 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 an hour count for yourself. Maybe it's a hundred days in a row where you consecutively work on your project. Um, once you've done that, you can kind of sit back and reevaluate. And I think you'll learn a lot about your process, your practice. You know, can you actually uh, structure your time productively when there's not a team around, when there's not um, someone looking over your shoulder? Do you actually wake up in the morning and get busy working, or do you really need the structure of a team? Sometimes having a job Monday through Friday where um, you have a structure and it leaves limited pockets of time is highly motivating. Uh, deadlines are very motivating for me. If I have uh, somebody breathing down my neck waiting for um, a piece of writing or an illustration, I'm much more apt to get that work done. Um, it, it's good to be self-aware about your own process and then to say, okay, what does that mean? Does that mean that I stay in my job, you know, like Albert Einstein or T.S. Eliot, Kurt, Kurt Vonnegut was another, he sold cars. Uh, the list goes on and on of all these amazing people who've, had, who've kept their day jobs uh, do I want to keep my day job? Can my calling flourish on nights and weekends? Or could I give it a go on my calling, you know, on kind of a sabbatical? Could I take um, a month off? Could I uh, maybe switch jobs and in between those two jobs ask for a two-month break? Uh, there's a lot of ways you can get creative and, and just play. And I think creating a safe space for yourself financially is very important so that you can have the psychological space to pursue your passion. And also um, make sure that you're continuing to communicate with those around you who you love and who love you and, and are counting on you to participate maybe um, financially or emotionally, physically, whatever that may be, uh, within your tribe, making sure that these, these decisions are all, are all okay. And you touched on probably the second biggest thing that we would all write down under what are we so afraid of, and that's failure. So we, we briefly talked about this a couple days ago, but I want to bring this to the audience. When you when you left your job, you began, you know, listing and selling your art online. And you had a great line when I asked you, you know, did you did you always believe that you would do this? You know, uh, you know, did you always believe that you could sell art online? And I remember you said, no, I thought that that was somebody else's life, but not mine. So self-confidence is the second biggest deterrent after finances. So you know, talk about that. Did you, you know, you, you thought that that would always be someone else's life, but now it's yours as well. So what did, what did you sort of learn that you can, you can parlay to the rest of us? I don't know who said it, but somebody said it. And I'm, I'm sure you guys will know what I'm talking about. There, there's this quote about if, if there's something that you say you can't do, then you absolutely have to go and do it. There's something that I would say is a, um, a real nice indicator of um, a real nice indicator to be aware of, you know, like let your little internal sirens go off when you look at something and say, uh, I could never do that. I could, wow, that really scares me. There's something about um, fear 
and um, vulnerability that's, that's actually a really interesting thing to befriend. Um, this wonderful exercise of the what are you so afraid of list takes the fears that are in our head and asks us, demands that we actually write them down on paper and make them real. And something really powerful happens when the fears move from inside our mind as these really scary monsters, and then they move outside onto paper. And when this happens, these fears, these um, concerns are suddenly tangible, visible. They are cross-outable. They are negotiable. And that's a very empowering moment, especially when you have something inside that's very scary. Even just writing them down feels better. And it's a wonderful activity, this what are you so afraid of list, because getting to know your fears is like saying, I want to get to know the walls that confine me, the walls that I live within every day, day in and day out. Um, there was a spiritual teacher around the turn of the century named Gurdjieff. And uh, he's one of the phenomenal minds behind uh, the Enneagram, which is a personality typology tool. And he had this uh, wonderful group of students. And one day he posed a question to his students. He said, if a prisoner desires to be free from prison, what's the first thing the prisoner needs to know? One student raises their hand and says, well, the prisoner needs to get to know the guard. Another student raises their hand and says, the prisoner needs to find the key. No, Gurdjieff says, if a prisoner wants to escape from prison, the first thing the prisoner needs to know is that they are in prison. Until they know that, no escape is possible. If we want to escape from prison, if we want to live the fullness of our lives, we first have to begin understanding why we are not free, what keeps us from being free. What are the walls that we exist within day in and day out? What are those limiting beliefs? What are those uh, perceptions that we believe are real, like walls of a prison, uh, that keep us, so to speak, um, this is from a book about the Enneagram, uh, living in the basement in darkness, essentially in our minds, when we're actually inside of an enormous, beautiful castle. There are so many limiting belief systems that we have psychologically inside of our minds around what we can or can't do, what we should or shouldn't do, uh, what we should or shouldn't spend our time doing in, in our lives, uh, with our work, with our, our, our passions, all of these different things. And becoming self-aware about those walls actually, just through self-awareness, releases their grip on our lives. It's like the, the, the basement lights come on. Suddenly we're able to see, oh, this whole time I've been sitting in a basement. And then you're able to say, oh, over there, that's a door. Maybe that's the stairs. And it begins to unfold a journey in our lives of self-understanding that happens just through self-awareness that um, is a very powerful, powerful journey. And that's getting to know these fears, these vulnerabilities, the shoulds that we exist within. And one exercise that I talk about uh, related to shoulds is to, again, take out a piece of paper and, um, and write down, you should fill in the blank, you should not, you should never, you should know better than to, and fill out these sentences um, these are essentially our prison walls. And just as 
we constructed them for some reason, most likely very early on in life, based on society, based on advertising, based on the particular time into which you were born. Um, just as we construct these, we can also bring these walls down. And we can do that through self-awareness. And that is that is the key. That is getting to know the guard. That is uh, choosing to live our life beyond those limiting walls. So tell us about how your life has changed since finding and choosing your must. Well, I think this is a tricky bit. Just because we choose must one day doesn't mean that we won't slip back into should the next day. Should is not a one-time choice. It's a recurring choice. And it pops up every time um, we make a decision. Are we making a decision because we feel like we should do something? Or are we choosing it because we, we have to, that this is deeply aligned and congruent with who we are? And um, throughout this journey, I think one of the great gifts is uh, learning how to be more self-aware of should and learning how to spot it from across the room. And um, should is very comforting, especially for our egos. Should can be um, very lovely and very pleasant. And um, so I think in my journey, it's, it's been recognizing should, learning how to have that dialogue conversation with myself a little bit faster, and uh, looking at must, especially when must goes into these vulnerable, scary places, uh, getting to have that conversation a little bit with a bit more strength um, and being able to navigate these choices. It's, it's, it's just sort of like getting, getting that muscle to be stronger for must and for should. Um, having powers for both is, is really the goal. It's not just about ignoring should and choosing must. Um, really, it's sort of like if the crossroads, instead of going in divergent directions, could ultimately become more of a circle or if, if should could do a U-turn and rocket, you know, rocket fuel into must, um, there is a wonderful gift to be gain, gained from becoming stronger at both sides of this crossroads. And over time, I think I, I spoke to this earlier, um, I've just found more alignment internally. And for other people who've been on this journey, there's, there's less uh, conflict happening inside about... Um, you know, what work to take on, what client to say yes to, um, how to spend your time, uh, with whom, what activities to be doing. Um, it, it becomes a little bit more, uh, like, like, you know, some sort of a martial arts where you're, you're making decisions, you're making movements. They're very powerful and you're creating incredible movement in your own life, which is rippling out and affecting others. And it's coming from, from almost, some sort of interpretive dance that that's that's maybe not even being coming from your mind so much as it is coming from all the parts being really integrated. So, Al, I'm I'm holding your, your book right now. Uh, the you know the crossroads of should and must find and follow your passion, and it's this is a beautiful piece of work. Not only visually, it's it's stunning visually, but in the information and and, and the exercises and the insight that is gleaned from it. Uh, th this, is a, this is a great piece for anybody in a creative position. Where, uh, where and when can people find this book? The book just came out, so it's very special to be talking to you today. Um, the book just came out. It's available 
um, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, IndieBound. If you'd like all the links in one spot, if you go to choosemust.com, that has all the links right there, and you can choose if you'd like to which which place you'd like to buy it at. And and I would highly highly recommend that our listeners check this book out. It's like I said, this is a stunning piece of art. It's not your normal book. Um, it's it's uh, words can't do it justice. So I'm not even going to try right now. So just <laughs> so just go check it out. Um, the Crossroads of Should and Must: Find and Follow Your Passion by L. Luna. Uh, L. This was so much fun. You're you're such a, a an, an inspiration for people who, um, you know, may or or may not have found their passion yet, and and are looking for ways to to work on it. So thank you so much for coming on. This was a this was this was my longest episode yet, but uh, d- definitely the most insightful. We got pretty deep there, uh, so I really appreciate you coming on on release day. This is uh, congratulations on everything, and um, thank you, thank you for for coming on. This was wonderful. Thank you so much, John. And to everyone else, you have a couple homework assignments. One, go check out the book. Two, write down what are you so afraid of uh, and and find where your white room is. Right, right, Elle? Yes, yes. Um, so thanks again to Elle for coming on. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, like it, subscribe, rate it, send it to your friends. Uh, we're trying to help anybody in a creative position uh, become inspired to to do even better work. So thanks again for stopping by, everyone. And um, for everyone, we will see you next time.